I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have another double feature for you. Later on in the program, we'll be speaking with Gulf State Analytics' Giorgio Cafiero about the turmoil that has haunted Libya since the 2011 NATO-led military intervention into that country and the overthrow of Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. As you'll learn in our conversation, foreign interventions in Libya have not ended, but they now involve different power players, namely Turkey and Russia. Giorgio will discuss that with us, as well as the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Yemen and the state of politics in the Gulf region. But first... February marks the 60th anniversary of the U.S. embargo against Cuba. In light of that, I reached out to Dr. Mitchell Valdez Sosa, the director of the Cuban Neuroscience Center. He kindly accepted to appear on the program and spoke with me about the history of the Cuban Neuroscience Center the late Fidel Castro's hopes and vision for Cuban public health and scientific research, Cuba's response to the pandemic and the development of their very own vaccines, which they are now hoping to share with the global South, and finally, the big controversy that is the Havana Syndrome why he believes it is not caused by exotic weapons, and the political motivations he sees behind Havana Syndrome conspiracy theories. All that and more in my conversation with Dr. Mitchell Valdez Sosa. But first, a word from one of our sponsors, namely the transmedia storyteller Joseph Matheny the pioneer of alternate reality games, who has a new audio drama out that is quite the mind-bender. It's called Zen. That's X-E-N, the Zen of the Other. And it's available on all your favorite podcast apps. And with that in mind, here's the promo for Zen, the Zen of the Other, the new audio drama from the mind of Joseph Matheny. Welcome to Parallax Views, Dr. Mitchell Valdez Sosa uh, of the Cuba Neuroscience Center. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. 
I hope you're well too. Indeed, indeed. Uh, to start out, I, I want to end up talking about uh, the 60-year embargo. We just had the anniversary of that, the embargo uh, against Cuba by the U.S. And I want to talk about Cuba's response to COVID as well as some other things. But first, maybe you could discuss uh, some of the history of the Cuban Center for Neuroscience and uh, the, the hopes and vision of Fidel Castro, the late Fidel Castro, when it came to Cuba and public health. Yes, uh, this is very interesting. Before the revolution, there was no large research centers in Cuba. In 1965, Fidel Castro personally uh, organized and, uh, uh, and mobilized a government support to create the National Research Center of Cuba. The very first research group created was the, uh, the, the, uh, the Department of Neuroscience. And the very first PhD uh, thesis defended in Cuba was on the topic of neuroscience. This was a, a Mexican professor that was working in Cuba, one of many Latin American uh, professionals that came to teach in Cuba to help us set up uh, our medical schools and to train more doctors. And she uh, defended a thesis on epilepsy. The tribunal had to be assembled, uh, inviting people across the world. There was no PhDs in Cuba. And that this was the very first PhD thesis. The defense was uh, in 1972. Now, uh, this process of training scientists started to grow exponentially. And uh, uh, over the years, from one research center, over uh, 200 research centers uh, were created. And uh, the interesting thing is that many of the research centers were uh, uh, germinated they, uh, uh, in the National Research Center. Uh, this National Research Center was like a nursery. And among the centers that were created there and then branched off was the Cuban Center for Neuroscience. Fidel's idea, and I, I think this is one that we uh, still try to follow, is that uh, we should do advanced research, including basic research, but the end product had to have an impact on the public health system. Uh, I was one of many young doctors that were uh, Fidel personally spoke to the university students and asked them to leave medical school, uh, the last few years of medical school, and study mathematics, physics, chemistry. So uh, it's a generation that went over to study uh, at the National Research Center and prepare for science. And uh, 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 we see the product of that effort in all the centers that later on were created, the Center for Genetic Engineering, the Center for Molecular Immunology, the Center for Immunological Assays, uh, the, the Center for uh, uh, Digital uh, Computation. Uh, so there are many centers that, that, that came out of this effort. And the idea was to combine uh, advanced research at a basic level, academic training, and also developing uh, results that could be applied to the public health system. We call this concept full cycle which means uh, uh, the, the centers created in what we call the scientific pole of Havana, they work uh, from the very basic research up to the introduction of the products uh, in factories, which belong to the centers and its commercialization. And the idea was to accelerate the impact of science 
on uh, Cuban society. Fidel in 1961 uh, uh, had uh, in a speech said that the future of Cuba has to be a future of men of science, of men of thought. And, uh, and uh, this research, big research center was created in 1965. It was uh, uh, just uh, one step in that direction. Of course, we have to remember that Cuba had the anti-literacy campaign in 1961. Immediately afterward, it launched uh, the battle. It was called the battle for the sixth grade so that everybody would reach at least sixth grade of education, that uh, then there was this push for uh, uh, studies in, in high school. Uh, from three universities, Cuba created over uh, uh, 20 universities all over the country. And in the context of this, uh, let's say educational revolution, this transformation of Cuba's educational landscape, uh, uh, th these research centers it represented the end product of this, uh, let's say, academic research. So this is a, a little of the history. The, the very first thing we did, I said, the very first thing that the Center for Cuban Center for Neuroscience did was develop a, a system for a early detection of hearing loss. So we use computers. A, a, to analyze the electrical activity of the brain of children, of newborns, and of infants, to extract what's called the auditory evoked responses, which are normal if the person can hear well, and have deviations from normality if there's a hearing loss. And as soon as we developed this technique, we started manufacturing it. And then we created a national network for the early screening of hearing loss. So uh, uh, this idea of carrying out research until it reaches all the uh, need, all the population that needs it, uh, 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 we're not doing work only for a small minority. We have to reach all the country, all the people. Is like I think the guiding principle of uh, of our research. So in many ways, that sort of sums up maybe the, the difference uh, between the Cuban health system and uh, maybe how the health system in the U.S. works. Yeah, but basically the Cuban health system is universal coverage. It's free. I mean, patients may have to pay for some medicines, but at very subsidized prices. Uh, they, they, for example, an auditory prosthesis, a, a, a hearing aid, cost only uh, 40 pesos. And, uh, so that's less than, a, uh, than one or two dollars for them, right? The rest is subsidized by the state. It has a, a, a centralized organization that goes from the high-level hospitals, the institutes, uh, uh, provincial hospitals, municipal hospitals, and then it has uh, the family doctor system, where every few blocks there's a, 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 a family doctor, a, a family nurse uh, in their small office, and it reaches all the population. And the other thing is, I think, the big emphasis on preventive medicine. So there's so much could be done if you develop preventive medicine uh, that, that then reduces the load on, on the hospitals. Okay, so this is a, a, what, what the Cuban health system is like. So then I guess the story that has been really taking the world by storm in some ways, I've seen so many news outlets covering it, is the Cuban response to the COVID pandemic 
and the story of a vaccine manufacturer in Cuba. Uh, what do you think people should know about that story? Because it's quite incredible. Well, there's, there's several aspects to this story. The first thing I would like to say is that the vaccines is really the, uh, let's say the, the one aspect, but the public health response was very consistent and very, I think, systematic. So uh, early on, as soon as we saw the epidemic was uh, coming uh, to Cuba, uh, it was, uh, you know, th there were these outbreaks all over the world. Uh, the government organized an, an, a central committee for this. And uh, the president of Cuba, uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel, started meeting with scientists every week to discuss a scientific approach to hearing loss. Uh, sorry, to, to the COVID response. And uh, uh, I think the message to the public was very coherent. Everyone, president, uh, ministers, uh, television, uh, you know, uh, anchors, uh, sportsmen, artists, everyone uh, that had any public appearance would appear with their masks on. And the message was very consistent. So the first thing I think that Cuba was successful was in delaying the peaks of the epidemic, the, uh, which is something that allowed us to prepare better. The second thing that Cuba did was uh, reinforce our intensive care units. We were seeing all these uh, very heart-rendering scenes from Italy, uh, from the UK, uh, New York, uh, Spain, and, and this uh, had everybody concerned. So we mobilized all our resources and uh, uh, several research centers like ours, like Cuban Center for Neuroscience, we set aside our, uh, let's say, our basic work, uh, uh, our, our main work, uh, uh, which has to do with the nervous system. And we started cooperating, building uh, ventilators. So there was a national mobilization to prepare. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, 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 the president had a meeting with all the scientists that worked, uh, uh, President uh, Diaz and all the people that worked in the field of vaccine development. And Cuba launched five vaccine projects simultaneously. The idea was uh, that, that they all, all would have slightly different characteristics at the, if, if all of them reached uh, 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 success, if they were successful, uh, they would be used for all of them. Uh, but there was a backup in case one of them did not uh, develop adequately. Uh, the, the, the story is that all five have been very successful in everything. And this was a, a, a mobilization, like when we manufactured ventilators, people working until very late at night, working weekends with a sense of, uh, uh, of urgency and a sense of solidarity to, to, to really guarantee that the Cuban population could receive its vaccines. Because uh, we must remember that despite uh, world concern about the COVID pandemic. And many things the countries have done, uh, Cuba is still under the effects of the US embargo. We had to develop our response to COVID with uh, the embargo, which has 60 years, as you said, but also for more than 400 additional sanctions that were slapped on Cuba during the Trump administration. Each of them trying to choke Cuba's possibility of obtaining funds to buy medicine, to buy equipment, 
we had, for example, at the beginning, when we were preparing for the uh, epidemic, the beginning of a response, we tried to buy spare parts for ventilators that already had uh, been used in hospitals. And some of the companies have been, uh, uh, which were originally, you know, European companies that have been bought up by US companies. We couldn't buy the spare parts. Uh, the other thing that, that, that I should say is that Cuba, a lot of its uh, uh, resources, all the resources it needs for its public health system uh, are obtained by our sales of medical products abroad. And uh, for example, Cuba sells many products, uh, uh, vaccines, biotech pro uh, products, uh, medical equipment. And many times we would uh, have money in banks and due to all the sanctions and all the restrictions on uh, bank transactions, we couldn't bring the money to Cuba. So uh, the incredible hardships the Cuban people have had to uh, endure due to the US policies, uh, it, it really is uh, something which was very cruel during this, uh, the, uh, this world pandemic, which I think brought out a lot of solidarity uh, worldwide. I have to say that, for example, the ventilators we built in Cuba is an open source design, which was manufactured in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. And that is a generous response that, that was, I think, very, very frequent across the world during the pandemic. People would share their knowledge. People were acquired in a very humane way, and they were very concerned about what was happening to other people. Another of the ventilators we manufactured the first one, the one with the MIT design, which we had to adapt to our conditions because we couldn't buy the uh, the parts that were described in the original design because we'd have to have bought them in the U.S. We can't buy from the U.S. directly. And uh, so we had to modify the design, but that, that we've already delivered 250 of these to the health system. And the other design is from the University College London. And it's also an open source design. We've already delivered 100. And before uh, April, we will have delivered in total uh, 250 additional ventilators. So the Cuban vaccine was produced under incredibly difficult conditions. Because the problem is that the US, not, it's not only a problem that the US uh, does not trade with Cuba, that the US actively persecutes Cuban sources of income that it also, uh, the US government also uh, tries to restrict any bank transactions. So even if we have legitimate sources of income, it's difficult to use that money to bring it to Cuba and use it. But additionally, they scare off suppliers across the world. So uh, uh, I've discussed with suppliers that have told me, okay, uh, it's true that uh, we could circumvent some way the US sanctions, but that would get us in trouble and we have very large contracts with the US. So uh, we can't work with you. And every day we have an instance of this kind of problem. Uh, for example, airlines saying, oh, this product has components from the US, we can't ship this to Cuba. So this is a, a, a terrible uh, situation of harassment and of trying to block the Cuban health system from attending its people. But despite this, I think the, the, the uh, dedication and the, uh, the hard work of our colleagues was successful. And we have over 90% of our population with at least one dose 
uh, over 89% with uh, all doses, and, and we're reaching 50% of people with a booster. And we can guarantee this to all our population free of cost and also help other countries in the world. That's actually some something I wanted to get into uh, briefly here, and then we can shift to other topics. The the Abdallah and uh, Soberana 2 vaccine, there is an attempt by Cuba to really help the global South uh, get these vaccines. Could you talk about how Cuba is helping with the vaccine efforts? Okay, so Cuba has several lines of work here. One of them is selling the vaccines at very reasonable cost to countries that can buy it. In other cases, for and this is the case, for example, Venezuela, Vietnam, and now uh, Mexico is uh, it's uh, uh, it's the equivalent of the FDA just approved the use of Abdallah in in Mexico, uh, but also Cuba is working in in technology transfer, so it's helping other countries set up their own production facilities. This is the case of Iran, and Cuba is now negotiating with several countries arrangements of these two types, either selling it at very reasonable prices, and in some cases donations to very poor countries, and in other cases, technology transfer. The interesting thing about the Cuban vaccines is that they do not require a very low temperatures to be stored. This is one of the problems with the uh, uh, the first vaccines, the ones that uh, uh, were developed by the big pharma uh, companies, that uh, you have to have a chain of, uh, of very low temperatures during uh, for storage and transportation because they deteriorate if, if, if the temperature is too warm. Cuban vaccines uh, can be stored in ordinary uh, household refrigerators. So this is a characteristic we think is uh, helpful in the context of the global South. The next question I had for you is uh, this, to me, it's just an insane uh, sort of conspiracy theory uh, known as Havana syndrome. And I thought it was all over a few weeks ago when uh, our central intelligence agency in the US said, we don't believe that this is exotic weapons. You know, I personally believe, like uh, Dr. Robert Bartholomew and other experts, that this is a, a mass psychogenic illness. Uh, but for some reason, uh, these claims about Havana syndrome and exotic weapons being used against uh, diplomats keeps uh, coming up in the US. And I, I wanted your comments on it because I think it, it's a claim that needs to be debunked. Yes, I agree completely. Uh... Cuba took this very seriously. And, and the initial response was, oh, it could be true. In fact, uh, the Cuban government in, in, uh, invited the FBI to come investigate. And the Cuban police set up uh, a joint investigation with the FBI. They did the same thing with uh, Canada because some diplomats in Canada were also complaining of, of uh, medical symptoms. And then we created a, a committee, a work group in the... Um, Cuban Academy of Sciences with specialists from different fields, from medicine, you know, neurologists, uh, ear specialists, uh, uh, toxicologists, uh, people from physics, uh, engineers, a very multidisciplinary team. And I, I was asked to head this team. And we have researched this very carefully. And uh, there's a Cuba, there's a report of the Cuban Academy of Sciences on its website, where we go carefully through each of the elements that form part of this uh, narrative. The narrative is essentially that there's a group of people that were in Havana, uh, US diplomats. Now we know 
that most of them were, were spies or were uh, intelligence agents, uh, but well, in general diplomats, uh, US government personnel. And the, uh, the narrative goes that a group of these people fell ill with uh, the same symptoms. So uh, uh, the same disease appeared in all. Second, that this was due to brain damage. Third, that this was caused by some sort of energy weapon. And fourth, that some malignant agent was, uh, uh, you know, perpetrating these attacks. And that any, uh, the, the last element of the narrative is that any other explanation, it was unacceptable. Now, when you go over this carefully, and we have not had access to the data from the patients, there's been little transparency in this, uh, except when very selective data has been published to booster this narrative, you know, to, to, to give a, to, uh, a boost to this idea. But when you look at the data that's been published by the US, not everybody has the same symptoms. And I guess this really exploded when 1,000 cases were, or over 1,000 cases were reported across the world. And that's what the CIA said a few weeks ago. They said, when you look carefully at all these cases, they have different conditions, medical conditions. Most of them are, uh, uh, most of them are, not, are, are very frequent and well-known diseases. And they're not due to attacks of a mysterious uh, foreign uh, weapon with, by foreign agents. And many cases are due to stress. And they, while you don't mention the word psychogenic, uh, immediately you think of stress, you think of a set of conditions which are related to psychogenic conditions. Uh, the, so when you look carefully at the data, it's not homogeneous. This is not a group of individuals that have the same disease. Second, there's no evidence of brain damage. Uh, every, uh, 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 every paper has been published has been heavily criticized by the uh, medical community. It's because of the flaws in the study. And essentially, nothing was shown in the brain images. And the neuropsychological tests that were reported were, were, were analyzed uh, uh, in a very uh, erroneous manner. There, were, there was a botched analysis that had been heavily criticized. In fact, one scientific journal, Cortex, asked the uh, uh, the authors that published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that they should retract that paper. So another scientific uh, journal asked them to retract because of the very glaring mistakes. These are mistakes that if they were made uh, by a, a PhD student, he'd flunk. So this is uh, something that, that is really a very botched job. And when you look at all the evidence, the symptoms are caused by many frequent diseases. You do not have to invoke brain damage. Second, the mysterious energy weapons, there has been no evidence for them. And many of the claims like ultrasound that has resurfaced, everybody recognizes that to damage the, uh, the health of somebody with ultrasound, you have to place the source very close to the person. And they've talked about microwaves, but microwaves would have disrupted electronic equipment. They would have caused heating of the skin. So there's, and, and, and of course, in the beginning, they spoke of sonic, sonic weapons, which is even more absurd. You cannot damage the brain and you cannot really, uh, without destroying the, uh, the middle ear. It has to be something like 100, 120 decibels, uh, a very large sound. And that would, uh, everybody in Havana would have noticed it. It would have been like the, an explosion or like the sound of a, of a jet engine. And so uh, the, the, this 
idea of directed energy really has no basis in reality. And there's no real uh, proposal, uh, logical proposal of who would be the malignant agent trying to attack American diplomats in Cuba. This makes no sense. And it, it makes even less sense that the Cuban government would, would allow it, you know, and because Cuba in that moment was making a very hard effort to uh, restore its ties with the US. So this is uh, absurd. And lastly, there are a lot of explanations that cannot be dismissed. Uh, first, I don't think everybody's imagining things or hysterical. All, many of these diplomats have real diseases, but what's wrong is the explanation that they give to their disease. So one thing is that you're ill, you have symptoms, which you've really suffered because of those symptoms. And the other thing is if you have the true explanation in your hand, and this is very difficult at times, but this is an important distinction, distinction because I've heard people say, oh, these are hard boiled uh, intelligent agents. They're not hysterical. Uh, they're not uh, uh, of weak character, but this has nothing to do. You can be ill because of another reason and yet have an erroneous explanation. And this erroneous explanation can exaggerate the symptoms because if you really think you're ill because of some mysterious attack, you start getting very worried. And, and then you have a, 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 an additional layer of uh, malaise because you have your original symptoms plus the concern. And if figures of authority, like the Secretary of State Tillerson or the president, the, uh, the ex-president uh, Donald Trump, uh, and you have doctors saying that, yes, this is a mysterious attack, then the psychogenic transmission of the problem will be very big. And that's what happened when they started searching around the world and, they, and, and over a thousand cases were reported and it had to collapse. This is uh, something that obviously had no scientific basis. Now, why do they still keep harping on that the cases in Cuba are real attacks? It's because there's a lobby of people that have used this to attack Cuba. And this lobby had to be satisfied. So they, they had to dismount, they had to dis, uh, really uh, 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 cut this process of propagation of this uh, erroneous explanation around the globe, but they had to make a concession to the lobby that's attacking Cuba, that's interested in keeping this alive. Uh, 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 so there's no, it doesn't stand to reason. In an open scientific discussion, in a, a, a political discussion to see what could be the motivations of anybody to do this uh, and why the Cuban government would permit it, uh, uh, the, the, the whole thing would simply disappear. And that frank and open discussion has not taken place. So we have to debunk this. And uh, I think it's a good thing that even the CIA recognizes that. In fact, many of their arguments in that report a few weeks ago uh, is sort of uh, are, are very similar to the arguments the Cuban Academy of Sciences was uh, uh, stating in their uh, report. And I think the only reason this is, is uh, people are trying to keep it alive is because uh, the, uh, the communication between Cuba and the US is, a, is at a very low point. And there are people that want to harm Cuba that are taking advantage of that situation. And I just want to add to that really quickly, and then we'll start to wrap up. 
you know, just the, the whole microwave weapons thing, uh, you mentioned there that, you know, if they're going to be targeting people's brain with uh, microwave weapons, that would be affecting the skin and injuring muscles that are sensitive to the microwave. So a lot of this is just the, the arguments for some of these theories, they're just bad science, ultimately, and QAnon-style conspiracy theories. Right. And, and, it, and it starts off from the fact that some people wanted to believe that the, these attacks existed and everything you see, you see them twisting around and bending backwards and trying to twist the facts because they want to keep their hypothesis alive. Now, good science is when you have a, a, a hypothesis and this hypothesis does not fit the facts and there are many reasons to discard it, you start giving it less credits. But there's a, a group of people very interested in keeping this alive and they twist the arguments and then they they, they change the, their approach. For example, they start talking about uh, something called the Frey effect, which is when you get near a radar, the, uh, uh, these radio frequencies uh, produce sound in the ear, in the head. You, you know, you, you get a, uh, the sensation of sound because uh, the, the, the radio frequency waves are turned into uh, a sound, uh, pressure waves in the head and you hear it. Uh, but this is a very weak effect. It cannot damage the brain. And then they present uh, diplomats on television with uh, recordings of sounds. Uh, the problem is if, if you're going to use the argument of the Frey effect, this occurs in the head. You cannot record it. Uh, so the whole story is inconsistent. Yet uh, uh, many, uh, many, many uh, reporters, many, much of the media, it simply ignores these inconsistencies because they want to keep the story alive, whatever happens. So in closing, I just want to say that I had a lot of hopes for U.S.-Cuba relations growing up getting better, especially under President Obama. And I think a lot of things went very much backwards under President Trump. And I have noticed you know, just people when I was at university only a few short years ago that had, I think, negative thoughts on Cuba. They believed in a lot of propaganda about Cuba or they were simply misinformed. They had misinformed views about Cuba. What do you think is the biggest understanding many Americans have about Cuba? And what do you hope that my listeners come to understand about Cuba from the conversation we've had? Yeah, imagine for a moment that uh, all the media and most of the, uh, let's say the social networks uh, were suddenly controlled by one, one of the US parties, let's say the Republican party. Democrats would really be uh, pissed off. Or let's say, let's, let's say the opposite. Let's say that all of the media and all the social media were controlled by the Democrats. And then the Republicans would be uh, pissed off. So what's happening to Cuba is that the only viewpoint that is being propagated in the U.S. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of uh, activity in social media. And of course, all the mainstream uh, 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 newspapers and, 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 new, and television stations, they all give only one side of, what's, uh, of, of discussions in Cuba, which is the side against the Cuban revolution. But there are millions of people struggling in Cuba, trying to make 
this country survive uh, to reach its population, to develop its public education, its public health, and to make a better world. And that's not being heard. So I think there's a monopoly in all the sources of information, or, or, or it's not absolute, but there's a, a majority of a systematic approach to attack Cuba. I also agree, this missing, this missing information reaches all levels. For example, just a few months ago, President Biden said that he thought Cuba was a failed state. This was during the visit of Chancellor Merkel to the White House and that he would donate vaccines because Cuba was failing in its COVID response if an international organization would distribute the vaccine so it's reached all, all the Cuban population, the average citizen. Now, this is so full of mistakes, I, I don't even know where to begin, but the problem is that even the president is uh, not well informed about Cuba. First, Cuba has a public health system that reaches everyone. We have an excellent record in vaccinations. In fact, if you compare our data to the CDC data about the United States, we have better vaccination rates across the board than the US. Second, Cuba did not need the US vaccines. And in fact, we demonstrated it because we developed our own vaccines and we vaccinated almost all the population. We have a higher vaccination rate than the US. We do not need any outside organization to reach the average citizen. The average citizen receives free public health and it would be better if the US did not uh, harass us. And uh, I think this is simply is something that this information is so strong that a, a, the president of such a powerful country as US makes these blunders because anybody that knows anything about Cuba will understand that these are, are simply, this is based on a gigantic misinformation. Uh, I, I'd like to say something, uh, it, it's this. Uh, the Cuban Center for Neuroscience has worked for many years developing the use of uh, computers for analyzing brain electrical activity, detect diseases, well, like hearing loss, but also dementia and other disorders. Our very first computer was donated by a group of American scientists. It was an analog computer, a CAT computer. And uh, this had a plaque, this small computer had a plaque that said to the Cuban people from their American brothers. And uh, so there are two factions, the US people, US scientists, have always had an attitude of solidarity with Cuba. And the, the, the contrast is that all the policy of the US towards Cuba has been hijacked by some reactionary factions in the United States that have completely blocked real exchange and a, a, a real cooperation between the two countries. Both countries have much to learn from each other. We would benefit with a normal relationship with the United States, we think we have things that would be very interesting uh, to the US. In fact, there's not one Cuban uh, treatment for cancer that's being tested in an institute in New York. And there's a, a in fact, during the Obama administration, the, a, a joint venture was set up to work on the development of treatments for cancer. So Cuban science is respected and science really belongs to humanity. So I really have the hope that in the future, a, a, a US policy will be able to escape this hijacking of uh, Cuba 
U.S. relationships by a group of reactionaries, and that uh, 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 there will be the possibility of more normal relations in the future. Well, I want to thank you again, Dr. Mitchell Valdez Sosa, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Mitchell Valdez Sosa of the Cuban Neuroscience Center. Next up, we're going to be speaking with Giorgio Cafiero of Gulf State Analytics to discuss his recent Al Jazeera article on the foreign elements at work in a still turmoil-stricken Libya. Additionally, Giorgio and I will discuss the history that has brought Libya to its current moment and some news related to the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and the changing nature, potentially, of politics in the Gulf. All that and more in my conversation with Giorgio Cafiero of Gulf State Analytics. But first, a word from one of our sponsors, namely musician Rick Berlin, who'd like you to know about his new book, The Big Balloon, A Love Story. I wrote The Big Balloon, A Love Story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been meaning to have on for some time, a really great analyst, the CEO of Gulf State Analytics, Giorgio Cafiero. I uh, hope I pronounced that right. How are you doing today, Giorgio? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's really good to be with you. So I wanted to have you on initially to talk about uh, Libya, and I, I think that's a, a really important topic right now because... Uh, the elections in Libya were recently postponed, but I think in order to get there, we have to talk about uh, how Libya got to the point it's at right now. Uh, why is Libya in this sort of state of having trouble uh, with elections? Well, you know, there's definitely an important context to keep in mind here. Um, I think a very good place to begin is 2011, when there was an Arab Spring uprising in Libya, just as there were, um, just as there were uh, uprisings in a whole host of Arab states 
um, in 2011, there was um, a rebellion against the Gaddafi regime in Libya. It had to do uh, with many internal issues inside Libya, a lot of oppression, corruption, human rights abuses, many internal uh, problems in the country uh, fueled this rebellion against the Gaddafi regime that had been in power for decades. However, that conflict quickly internationalized with uh, militaries from NATO, militaries from some Gulf states getting involved in this conflict between anti-Qaddafi rebels and the regime. By uh, the middle of 2011, the regime fell, and this was certainly an outcome of the foreign intervention. If it were not for the foreign actors in that uh, decided to get involved in that period, I think it's very possible that the Gaddafi regime would have been able to survive. In any event, um, the situation following the fall of Gaddafi's regime was extremely volatile. There uh, was so much turmoil, so much terrorism in Libya. There uh, were major divisions between different communities in the country. And by 2014, a full civil war erupted. This was, um, at the risk of oversimplifying it a bit, uh, a war between East and West. There was a power center in Tripoli and a power center in the Eastern city of Tobruk, right next to Egypt. And in the Eastern capital, there uh, was an armed group. You had you know, this, the self-styled Libya National Army, LNA, uh, which was basically the fighting force for the Eastern administration. And General Khalifa Haftar, who I'm sure we'll be talking about a lot today, was the, um, has been serving as the head of the LNA for many years. And the LNA was fighting militias uh, loyal to the government in Tripoli, which also was recognized by the UN and the international community as the quote-unquote legitimate government of Libya. This civil war uh, went on from 2014 up until 2020 when it froze. Uh, there's a lot to say about how the civil war played out, but um, to make a long story short, if you will, in April 2019, Haftar's LNA waged an all-out offensive on Tripoli trying to topple that government in uh, the Libyan capital, that offensive on Tripoli failed. And one of the main reasons why it failed was because Turkey got involved on the side of the Tripoli government and pushed Haftar's forces back east, essentially demonstrating to Haftar that he would not be able to achieve his goals militarily. And by August 2020, the conflict froze. Then in October 2020, there was an official ceasefire agreement that went into effect. So there has fortunately not really been any cases of Libyans killing Libyans since that point in 2020. That being said, the conflict is definitely not resolved as of now. It's sort of a, a frozen conflict. And in late 2021, in December of 2021, there was supposed to be an election 
held in Libya. And according to those who were the most optimistic about what the election was going to achieve, this event was supposed to help bring Libya into this new post-conflict chapter, a new chapter of unity, reconciliation, so on and so forth. Now, the election did not happen. A commission in Libya declared that the election had to get postponed. And there were many reasons why some people and many people welcomed that decision. It was not clear what powers the new leader was going to have as a consequence of the election. There was no agreement among the Libyans about the rules governing the election. There was no agreement about who could participate in the election. Uh, there were controversial questions about the presence of foreign forces in the country. So due to many, many factors, I, I named some of them, uh, the idea of having the election was one thing on paper, but in practice, it was very problematic. And so that election scheduled for December 2021 was postponed. We still don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, to make things even more complicated for Libya right now, the government, the interim government that uh, was in power in 2021, had a mandate that officially ended on the date of the December election. So according to certain Libyans, the current government doesn't even have a mandate to govern and is totally illegitimate, while the government itself and its supporters are saying that it needs to retain power until there are real elections. So the major concern is that these divisions and this overall state of uncertainty is possibly going to result in Libyans fighting each other again and resulting in the country slipping back into an ugly armed conflict. We, of course, don't know how uh, Libyans will navigate all these uncertainties this year, but certainly uh, concerns about that scenario, I think, are very valid. So real quickly, uh, there was a lot made of Libya becoming a, a fledgling democracy that was going through a chaotic transition after the overthrow of Gaddafi. It seems like since then, when people were saying that in you know, uh, 2011, 2012, things have deteriorated. Uh, what did people maybe miss when it came to what was happening in Libya? Uh, why was there that triumphalism and what did people miss? Uh, why didn't it turn out as great as people thought it would? It's an excellent question. My personal opinion is that transitions from dictatorship to democracy usually don't happen so well when there's a foreign military component in the picture. Uh, we saw you know, the difference between what happened with Iraq in 2003 and what happened uh, in Tunisia in 2010-2011. I think when um, revolts take place, there's a better chance that they will lead to a democratic outcome if that rebellion is more of an internal one that doesn't have such a heavy foreign hand or uh, a foreign military hand involved. Also, at the same time, you know, there are so many other factors too. In Libya, it was very problematic uh, when 
you know, we were talking about the hydrocarbon wealth of the country, questions about who gets um, what kind of a slice of, of the pie and how much autonomy will there be in this new political system? How much power will the central government have? Um, a lot of ideological divisions between Libyans were quite deep. So, you know, we had this regime in power for decades that was very much oriented around one single figure, a, a dictator, and he had a very, very strong cult of personality. And to have him completely removed so quickly, I think it led to so many of these divisions, which had been pushed below the surface for decades, sort of coming uh, above the surface. And it played out in very, very violent ways. And it's truly been uh, tragic, the uh, failure of Libya to move in a more stable and democratic direction over these past 11 years. But um, again, though, I definitely don't think it's fair to pin all the blame on Libyans themselves. I think obviously, as we'll probably talk about more, there are so many foreign actors that have done a lot to exacerbate many of these very serious problems in Libya. I want to come back to the foreign actors, but maybe we could talk a little bit about um, who the proposed candidates uh, for the Libyan election when it happens are. I believe one of them is is actually a relative of Gaddafi. And also you mentioned uh, General Haftar. Uh, They're both in the uh, sort of playing here. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit more about the ins and outs of the candidates in the election itself? Yeah, well, as you uh, correctly point out, Gaddafi's son, uh, Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, is um, a figure whom certain segments of Libya would like to see as the country's new leader. Obviously, um, he's an extremely controversial figure, and there are many Libyans who believe it's completely unacceptable for him to be considered a presidential candidate. Um given you know crimes that he himself is responsible for as well as uh the you know the history of his father's regime nonetheless he's popular among certain segments who are nostalgic for the Qaddafi era they uh remember that era as a time of stability and prosperity in the country and the son of Muammar Qaddafi is seen as the Libyan who can bring the country back to this uh, period, which certain Libyans romanticize quite a bit. The other candidate you mentioned, um, Khalifa Haftar, as we uh, discussed earlier, was the head of the LNA. He was a former Gaddafi regime official. He uh, had a falling out with Gaddafi years and years ago um, in the early 1990s. And he spent about two decades of his life living in the Washington DC suburbs. And he came back to Libya rather opportunistically during the 2011 period when there was the revolt against the Gaddafi regime. And Haftar saw that as an opportunity for him to return to Libya and uh, be an influential figure in the post-Gaddafi era. He was not taken very seriously, though, during his first several years back in Libya. But then in 2014, the LNA under his leadership launched Operation Dignity. And Operation Dignity was set of military, it was a military campaign against Islamist militias. 
in parts of Libya, the Benghazi area, and elsewhere. And the extent to which Haftar's Operation Dignity proved to be somewhat successful, at least at that stage, led to him gaining some popularity, particularly among Libyans who grew fed up with militias and Islamist groups in the country. They began to see Haftar as a force who would be able to get the militias in check, if you will. And consequently, uh, he began to receive substantial support from a number of external powers, um, including United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and some other countries too, such as Russia and Israel and Jordan. And um, he you know, was behind this 2019 offensive on Tripoli that I mentioned earlier. That was a major turning point in the Libyan civil war. But his um, efforts to capture Tripoli by force failed due to the Turkish military intervention. And so Haftar and his forces ever since 2020 have been pushed back into the east. Nonetheless, he still um, is a very, very important figure in Libya. He will certainly have uh, at least some sort of a role in the country for, throughout the foreseeable future, it seems. And um, even though he failed in his quest to kind of become the new Gaddafi who would take over the whole country, he still is definitely an actor uh, for, for all of us to contend with moving forward. And I'm sorry, but I will also add, too, that um, when we're talking about why he's a controversial candidate, uh, he has been found guilty of some very serious human rights abuses. Um, I encourage your listeners to check out Amnesty International reports, Human Rights Watch reports that have looked at the actions of the LNA uh, throughout the Libyan civil war. Um, and, you know, for these reasons, there are, you know, his opponents in the country uh, will argue that his crimes are just simply beyond the pale, and therefore it's just unacceptable for him to be a legitimate presidential candidate. And you know, needless to say, he's obviously an extremely polarizing figure in Libya. And because of the events of 2019 and 2020, we can expect there to be staunch opposition to him from uh, Libyans of the West. So. We've sort of mentioned in passing foreign involvement in Libya. You've mentioned Russia, Turkey, uh, UAE. Is there anything folks should know about this issue of uh, foreign sort of hands in Libya that we haven't covered yet? Absolutely. There are two main powers that have a heavy military presence in Libya. These powers are Russia and Turkey. To um, go back to that 2019-2020 offensive that Haftar uh, was waging against Tripoli, the Russian mercenary force Wagner Group deployed its fighters to Libya to support the LNA during that offensive on Tripoli. Um, even after that offensive came to an end in the middle of 2020, the Wagner Group has maintained a presence inside Libya. Uh, people dispute the numbers, but my understanding is that there are 
maybe 7,000 to 8,000 Wagner Group fighters who were still in the North African country. And then at the same time, as we discussed, the uh, Tripoli-based government and the forces loyal to it were able to uh, defend Tripoli from Haftar's offensive and push back the LNA to eastern Libya. Uh, they did so because of the Turkish military intervention. But when the conflict froze, that didn't result in the Turkish military leaving Libya. There's still a Turkish military presence inside Libya. Now, as I was mentioning in an Al Jazeera piece that I co-wrote recently, um, there's not really any reason to expect the Turkish military or the Wagner group to leave Libya anytime soon. Libya is very geostrategically valuable to Ankara and Moscow. And the, you know, the benefits of maintaining a presence in Libya are very high in the eyes of the Turkish and Russian leadership. And um, there's not really any pressure on the Turkish military to leave or any pressure on Wagner Group to leave. I was uh, speaking to one Libya expert who told me that um, basically the only power in the world that could theoretically take actions to pressure and incentivize the Turkish military or the Wagner Group to leave is, is the United States. And if the United States is not going to do that, there's not going to be another power that pushes the Turkish military or the Wagner group out of Libya. And Libya is just simply not a priority for the Biden administration. The Biden administration is focused on, on Ukraine, on North Korea, on the COVID pandemic here inside the United States. I mean, Libya is very far down the list of priorities for Biden's administration to the point I think that we could see both the Turkish military and the Wagner group consolidating, perhaps institutionalizing their presence in Libya. When we began this conversation, we were talking about the Western states intervening in Libya back in 2011. That was mainly the US, the UK and France. Well, now fast forward 11 years, the two dominant outside actors in Libya are Turkey and Russia, with the Turkish military presence and the Wagner Group's presence in Libya. It's Erdogan and Putin who are the kingmakers in Libya. And now today, there's no Western power that is playing you know, a dominant role inside Libya. There's no Western head of state that is a kingmaker in Libya. Turkey and Russia are the two dominant outside players in Libya. Now, I also think it is important to note that the Turkish military presence and the Wagner Group's presence in Libya are rather different. When we're talking about Turkey's military and the role that it plays in Libya, Turkey's government is, is very open about this, and everyone knows what Turkey is doing in Libya. Whether someone loves the Turkish involvement or they hate the Turkish involvement. There's no dispute about the fact that Turkey's military has this presence in Libya. However, when we're talking about the Wagner group, there's a more shadowy situation. Uh, the Russian government engages in plausible deniability. They, the, the Russian government simply 
maintains that the Wagner Group is a private company and that its activities in Libya don't have anything to do with the Russian state. You know, it's obvious, however, that the Wagner Group is in Libya, as well as other African countries like Central African Republic, Mozambique, Sudan, is engaged in activities in these countries on behalf of Russian national interests. So to talk about the Wagner Group as if it is completely disassociated from the Russian state is not uh, being honest. Any claim that the Wagner Group has nothing to do with the Russian state is simply not true. However, this serves a purpose, though, because the Russians are able to take advantage of this plausible deniability um, so that they can it serves a number of Russian interests. It enables Russia to still serve as a mediator or at least try to serve as a mediator in uh, Libya, which the uh, Russians to some extent have been doing for a number of years. And it makes it seem you know, like Russia is not so one-sided in the conflict. This creates a circumstance though, uh, where Russia is able to advance its interests in Libya in sort of, in some undercover ways. And that is fundamentally different from how Turkey is conducting its business in Libya. Also, Turkey is there um, and has been in Libya in support of internationally recognized governments, whereas the Wagner Group was fighting on behalf of Haftar, who was linked to a government that was not uh, recognized by the UN as the quote-unquote legitimate government. So I think it's just important to go over some of these differences um, because Ankara and Moscow are definitely uh, playing a, uh, a different game, if you will, inside Libya. If I may, can I make one additional point about the foreign intervention? It's important to realize that the United States is not on the same page with a number of European countries when it comes to this question about the foreign rules inside Libya. The United States ultimately accepts that Wagner Group has a presence in Libya, and it realizes that it's not going to take actions to kick Wagner Group out of Libya. But what I think the Biden administration wants is to see to it that there is not an expansion of Wagner Group's um, presence inside Libya. They essentially want Wagner Group somewhat contained in the North African country. And the United States believes that Turkey, its LO NATO ally, is the power which is in a position to put a check on the Wagner Group. So while the U.S. doesn't want the Wagner Group to expand and it doesn't want to put its own forces in Libya, the U.S. sees the Turkish role inside Libya as rather useful, convenient. For all the problems in U.S. key relations, I think Washington is quite grateful that Ankara is putting a check on the Wagner Group inside Libya. However, in France, the perspective is different. France isn't grateful for any Turkish role inside Libya that's countering Russia. I think it's very easy to persuasively argue that France is a lot more concerned about Turkey's actions in Libya than it is about anything the Wagner Group is doing in the country. 
And why do I say that? Or why do you know other analysts think that? Well, when the 2019-2020 offensive on Tripoli was taking place, when the LNA was trying to uh, topple the UN-recognized government in Tripoli, you had um, the Wagner Group playing a role in that offensive, and then you also had Turkey intervening in, in very early 2020. I don't remember many instances of French officials slamming Russia for its actions in Libya, but there were very strong words that the French leadership had uh, when it came to talking about what Turkey was doing. Remember, France and Turkey are NATO allies, and France had a bigger issue with what its NATO ally was doing in Libya than what uh, Russia, than anything pertaining to Russia or the Wagner Group. So there's no doubt that Western countries have their divisions. And there's also been big divisions between France and Italy when it comes to Libya. And this is all to say that NATO is quite, NATO has suffered from some serious divisions when it comes to the Libya situation. And I think that's definitely a dynamic that Russia has been able to take some advantage of. And this um, situation in Libya has factored into Russian efforts to try to pull France a little further away from the the Western bloc and to try to bring France a little closer to Moscow. I think that's important to note. And also uh, in regards to this issue of um, Libya and what the future may hold for it, what are the stakes here for people that may not be getting the, the bigger picture or maybe missing the forest for the trees? Well, when we talk about the future of Libya, we have to consider that the possibility of long-term partition is very real. If this UN-led peace process fails or if there's a return to armed conflict, uh, I don't think we should rule out the possibility of Haftar and other figures in the eastern part of the country deciding that it's in their interest to just sort of consolidate power in that eastern area of Libya and just sort of forget about the West, if you will, and to just try to have their own country there, you know, a a country in which there is a political order that's very friendly to Egypt and the United Arab Emirates, a political order there that's very friendly to Israel, perhaps, a political order where there's no room for any Islamist factions to participate in politics or social life or anything like that. And um, the West or in part of Libya could very well be um, ruled under a political order that is much more friendly to Turkey and um, is maybe a little more connected to Algeria and Tunisia in some political respects. And that the days of Libya being a united nation state are over. Now, I'm not necessarily saying I would bet the farm that that's going to be the outcome, but if there is no um, way to solve these major political issues in Libya that have fueled so much polarization, the um, possibility of partition is certainly one that needs to be considered seriously. In closing out here, I know we don't really have time to get into both articles that in depth, but Uh, You also recently wrote about um, Israel, UAE, 
cooperation and what that may mean. And also you've written a little bit uh, recently about uh, Yemen and the intensifying war there and how it's worsening uh, the world's worst civilian crisis. Could you comment on uh, both of those things and maybe what all of this means uh, for the potential future of Gulf politics? I know that's a lot, but uh, maybe just summing it all up. Yes, well, as I'm sure your viewers are aware, there has been a Saudi-led Arab military coalition fighting in Yemen since March 2015. This coalition has been at war with the Houthi rebels, and the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been the two most important Arab powers inside this coalition. Now, there were many, many countries in the coalition, but some of them made very, very tiny contributions. And the main purpose of them joining the coalition was just to make it seem like it was much more multinational than it was. At the heart of it, it's been basically a Saudi and Emirati-led military coalition. And um, the UAE, back in 2019, formally withdrew from the Yemen conflict. And there was uh, much hype made about this decision um, in which the UAE was supposedly getting out of the Yemen war. And yes, indeed, in 2019, the UAE did take uh, most of its ground troops out of Yemen. However, the UAE has definitely remained a party to the conflict. Abu Dhabi has given a tremendous amount of support to many surrogate groups inside southern, on the ground in southern Yemen. Uh, such as the Southern Transitional Council, which is a separatist group based in uh, southern Yemen. That is, uh, some analysts describe it as a proxy of the UAE. However, from that point on, the UAE has mostly been focused on its interests in southern Yemen and not concerned so much about the Houthi rebels who have been in control of the north since 2014. So the UAE was always supportive of the international. Well, it was it, the UAE was never supportive of the Houthis, but in recent years, the UAE's energy has not been devoted to fighting the Houthis. However, and we should point out that this created a significant amount of tension between Saudi Arabia and the UAE. The Saudis were supporting the UN-recognized government of Yemen while the Emiratis were supporting the Southern uh, Transitional Council group in the South. And the Saudis felt that the Emiratis had not really been helping out in terms of fighting the Houthis. Beginning in late 2021, this rift started to somewhat mend, resulting in cohesion inside the Saudi-led military coalition. And some of the groups UAE had been backing started fighting against the Houthis and started taking back land that the Houthis took themselves in 2020 and 2021. And so the Houthis saw this growing cohesion within the Saudi-led military alliance as a huge threat. And they started attributing their losses on the ground to the UAE. So on January 17th, the Houthis carried out an attack against Abu Dhabi. Uh, it was a missile and drone attack that hit the international airports, uh, damaged an oil facility, and three people died. So essentially, the Houthis that day 
managed to make Abu Dhabi the new front to open up in the Yemen war. And it's, of course, important um, for your viewers to keep in mind that Yemen and the UAE did not share a border. So while the Houthis have been spending years firing missiles and drones into Saudi Arabia, this was the first time in which the Houthis waged an attack against the UAE that the UAE authorities acknowledged. So this is a major escalation in the conflict. And then on three occasions since January 17th, the uh, Houthis have attacked the UAE again. Um, in those cases, the U.S., the UAE managed to intercept the incoming missiles, and there uh, was no loss of life during those episodes, but it's still a, a sign that this Houthi uh, determination to keep on attacking the UAE is, is not going anywhere. Uh, why are the Houthis now uh, targeting the UAE? Well, it, it's really simple. They're trying to incentivize the Emiratis into changing their conduct in, in Yemen. As I mentioned, the Emiratis are waging surrogate warfare in Yemen. And in recent weeks, recent months, that's led to the Houthis suffering losses on the ground. And the Houthis are trying to get the Emiratis to cut off their support. Um, if this strategy is going to work, uh, it will take time to tell. I think, um, as I mentioned in my Al Jazeera piece, some experts doubt that this strategy will work. They think it actually just might lead to more unity between the UAE and Saudi Arabia. It might even lead to the UAE increasing its support to militias on the ground that are fighting the Houthis. So I think I'll end by just saying that um, the, the situation in Yemen is, is not de-escalating, unfortunately. Um, January 2022 it was an incredibly deadly month in Yemen and that this intensification of hostilities between the Houthis and Abu Dhabi has potential to, to only exacerbate the warfare and uh, by extension, all of the humanitarian disasters in Yemen too. It's uh, to say the least, it's a very, very tragic situation in Yemen. And, and is there anything else you would say in closing about, I, I know I had mentioned the UAE Israeli cooperation article mm -hmm. you wrote. Do you, do you think there's any changes that we're possibly seeing in the future for Gulf politics? Well, what's very interesting is uh, there's a trend toward normalization with Israel and the Israelis um, and the Emiratis have had formalized diplomatic ties since 2020 when the UAE and Israel both entered the Abraham Accords. And there are many different dimensions to this relationship uh, that go from tourism to investments to agriculture to energy. The Israelis and Emiratis are cooperating in so many spheres. There's also important security and defense dimensions to this bilateral relationship too. And um, you know, at the way end of last month, the Israeli president came to the UAE and he made it very clear that as the UAE is being hit by the Houthis and as the Emiratis are living with a greater threat from the Houthis, that Israel stands by UAE and is willing to support the UAE in its fight against what the Israeli government calls terrorism and what the Emirati government sees as terrorism. Um, I think Israel is trying to send out a message to the wider Arab Islamic world that if more countries follow in the UAE's footsteps and formalize diplomatic relations with Israel, that they too can benefit 
from uh, these uh, forms of cooperation in the defense and security sectors. But, um, you know, by the same token, uh, governments that choose to formalize diplomatic relations with Israel uh, take risks in doing so. It can make them uh, targeted both by their own populations as well as by um, actors outside of their own countries. So it's definitely a, a delicate issue. But what we can certainly say is that Israel, I think, is trying to take advantage of this growing insecurity in the Arabian Peninsula to demonstrate that Israel is a power that can make your country safer if you choose to have a formalized relationship with it. Well, Shorshio, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with the work you're doing and uh, Gulf State Analytics? Thank you. It's really an honor being on your show. If your viewers are interested in following me on Twitter, my handle is my first name followed by my last name. That is G-I-O-R-G-I-O-C-A-F-I-E-R-O. Thank you again, Giorgio Cafiero. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Dr. Mitchell Valdez Sosa, director of the Cuban Neuroscience Center, and Giorgio Cafiero of Gulf State Analytics. I would highly recommend keeping up with the work he is doing. As always, if you appreciate what I'm doing here at Parallax Views, consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. Any amount will help. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout out. So, producer's credit shout outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, and The Mirror Framework, who I'm hoping we will be working with more in the future. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above at my Patreon page, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, 
uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.